Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Dr. Mer- Dr. Rapici, we meet again. <laughs> Barry, fancy seeing you here. I How are you? Got, I barely got that out tonight. Here we are. It's this good. Is what happens when we have the evening, uh, the evening train, when we had the evening train broadcast. But uh, well, it's all good, man. It's all good. It's good to see you. Yeah. And uh it's tonight, good to see you. tonight we are talking about a little Jacques Attali, I believe is the pronunciation. Attali, Attali is what uh, Google told us. Attali, Jacques Attali. Uh, we're talking, okay, I'll, I'll say something besides uh, Jacques his name. Attali. Uh, yeah, his name. Um, we're talking about a chapter called Repeating from Jacques Attali's uh, book, um, Noise, colon, The Political Economy of Music. And true to form, uh, we're going to talk a lot about the political economy of music, if not so much about noise. Uh, we're probably going to end up talking more about this concept of silencing uh, as much as we are going to talk about Atelier's concept of noise. But we're certainly going to be talking about both music technologies and also um, what else? Also about the various ways in which technology is imbricated with um, I guess the consumption of technology and, and yeah. how music sort of interacts with that. Yeah, there's a nice, I, I think that the the timing of this uh, following our discussion of Gould is um, yeah. really nice because a lot of, I, I found that the two overlap nicely and then it seems that we reach a point and Gould veers left and Atali veers violently to the right and so I, yeah. I think it's but not it's, politically, we should say not politically. No, just not politically, just in a very different direction. Just yeah. I think philosophically, we yeah. it, it, yeah, and yeah, what's, fasc- what's, what's fascinating to me about this before we jump in is that they they diverge despite having a very, very, very similar foundation. It's like they're just reading the tea very leaves close. very differently. Very close. very close. Yeah, very. But but their their entry into the question of uh, music is through the idea of uh, sound recordings and the reproduction of sound. That's both their, their starting point. And so you're right. Uh, you know, even though they veer apart, um, um, it's almost diametrically opposed in, in certain points. And also, I would say they're diametrically opposed at certain points. Uh, it is very interesting that their point of entry, this this idea of, uh, that the invention of sound recording and the distribution of sound recordings is a game changer. That that That's both of their, mm-hmm. that's their starting point for both their work. We should also say, well, we're, well I don't want to cut you off on that, but just another just another point um on you know similar point or slightly divergent point from what you just said but i think it's still part of the same tree the the, uh, the there there's even a the genesis of having this autility uh, episode is we finished talking about background music and glenn gould's praise of background music and the reason you know, that's something we talked about um uh, he talked about, uh, Gould talks about the pedagogic value of background music. And I mentioned to Michael, I don't know if I did it in the episode, but I, may, I think it was afterwards. I said, you know what? There's this guy named Jacques Atali. And he, uh, boy, he doesn't like background music. Gould loves it. But it's like Atali says the exact opposite. And so I reread it. Michael read it. And we said, golly, they do. They do diverge. And it'll be interesting to talk a little bit about um, where they converge and where they diverge, hence this episode. Right. So does that set things up enough? Maybe we should look at a passage and gloss it, and then we'll try to think about or how do you want to how do you want to do this? Do you want to look at a well, passage I think, first? So do you have like opening remarks, other no, opening well, my remarks? my thinking, and, and I think just as sort of a, a an organizational rubric here, I, I think maybe that's We've, in order. Let's just say let's, organizational rubrics are in order. Let's yeah, and that. let me tell you right now that <laughs> let's hear that. Like, nothing sexier than those two words put together. <laughs> um, no, Rubric I was thinking take. that the the general outline is predicated. Well, the general discussion is predicated upon the fact that Gould, which was the discussion last time, by the way, um, 
it wasn't really the discussion last time because we found a sneaky Adorno and Horkheimer episode buried that oh, somehow not I'm been published. That... So for those of you listening, um, there is a Horkheimer and Adorno cut. culture industry yeah. episode that we somehow forgot to hit publish on. So you got a, a freebie uh, in that one. So except the ex- bonus cut. Thank you. Thank it you is. Yes. Um, yeah. the, the archive got deeper. So anyways, uh, to focus here, um, if we look at Gould, the discussion there really centered around, okay, so we now have recorded music and what's it going to do to live performance and to um, music in general? How does it function as background noise? A lot of that is actually the discussion that Atali lays out. And I think that the way that you and I have talked about this in our little pre-show meeting, we're really mm-hmm. going to follow that plan. It's what is the effect of the archive? Right. What the, the recorded music creates an archive. What is the effect and of having that, that archive? Yeah. And then uh, following Gould, really, that archive gets purposed or repurposed as background music. And what is the effect of background music? How does background music work, according to Jacques Attali? And in both cases, he comes to a different conclusion than Gould. So I don't. I think as far as just the you know the the breadcrumbs to follow, I, mm-hmm. I think that's that's the plan. Is I right? That's the no, plan. No, it's good. We should remind um, uh, listeners who, um, or or just point out to listeners who, um, especially since as you remark, we we made it confusing for everybody as is our want. Um, but we are talking about the previous episode on Glenn Gould's "The Prospects of Recording" essay. So. Uh, just to mention that from 1966, I believe. And um, we're going to be talking today about Jacques Attali's Noise, published in 1980. So that gives us the time frames. And Michael, while you were talking, I realized that, boy, talk about convergences and divergences. The Even the outline of the, you know, I, did, I didn't think of this until you said it. Even the, okay, this is a chapter, this is not a standalone essay, this is a chapter from Audley's book, but uh, I just realized that uh, the outline of this particular chapter, repeating, totally dovetails with Len Gould. Yeah. He opens up with a historical lesson. Um, I guess Gould gives more, less history and more personal experience, but they end up talking about why sound recording um, and sound recording technology is a game changer. Um, Then Gould modulates into an argument about the creation of the listener, the expert listener. And Gould is very malleable in that category. One of the things that's interesting about his essay, when he says that sound recording makes everyone an expert listener, he also includes would-be professional musicians, you know, everybody becomes an expert listener. And in, and then finally, as, as you were pointing out, um, the last bit of the essay, he brings up the, he, Gould, raises the question of background music and gives it a totally po- positive valence. But so, now that's where, as we'll discuss, Adali diverges. But until you said it, I didn't realize it's a straight arrow line. Well, let, really. me, ask, let me ask you a question about this because- The interesting difference here is that Gould handles his discussion fairly succinctly. It's a fairly tidy art Mm -hmm. essay. Mm -hmm. It's not terribly long. Mm -hmm. What I found interesting about the fact that these two follow the very, not in the same, but a very, very similar arc is that Atali does this over nearly 50 pages right as a chapter this is a this is a big chapter almost to the point where i wonder why it's not split into two but he obviously felt that this was the same discussion right so what what's telling is that not only does you answered it though that he, he feels that there is a through line Sometimes it's hard to it's sometimes it's hard to see, though, because mm-hmm. it's so damn long. Right. Right. So the discussion, I guess what I'm saying is, and that's the point I was trying to make, is that both men see this idea and the various parts of the idea 
as necessarily belonging to the same discussion. So the question really is, all right, we have sound recording. What's the effect of the archive? Oh, right, right, right. And then once this sound recording seeps out, leaks out, once it is used as, and they both agree, it's going to be used as background music. To, it's the soundtrack to your life. What right. is the effect on that? So right, this, right. you know, it, it, despite the fact they end up in totally different neighborhoods here, mm-hmm. both of them agree this is the discussion front to back, or at least these are the parameters of that discussion. Yeah, I, I just uh, stayed lingered on that for a moment because I didn't realize that throughout this long chapter, it's throughout Gould's shorter essay, but even throughout this, you know, mammoth chapter from noise. Um there is that you know kind of similar arc, but with from very different perspectives, as we've already said. Maybe we should. Um, anything else you want to say, or should we just sort of dive in? Let's jump and in. We'll try to. We'll try to. We'll try to set the scene as we as you know. I'll read a passage, or you'll read a passage. How about that? Okay, so the first section that we've identified here is uh, on page fifteen of the version we have. I say that just say it's about a third of the way into the essay. And he's talking about the effects of recording. So this is just prior to the discussion on the archive. Um, And he says, at the same time, usage becomes transformed. Accessibility replaces the festival, a tremendous mutation, a work that the author perhaps did not hear more than once in his lifetime, as was the case with Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and the majority of Mozart's works, becomes accessible to a multitude of people and becomes repeatable outside of the spectacle of its performance. It gains availability. It loses its festive and religious character as a simulacrum of sacrifice. It ceases to be unique, exceptional event heard once by a minority. The sacrificial relation becomes individualized and people buy the individualized use of the order, the personalized simulacrum of sacrifice. Hey, Michael, I know you're going to read the next paragraph as well, but there's let's, so much going let's on in the stop first here. paragraph. Let, yeah, let's, yeah, let's, let's stop let's here. Pause. So we're agreed. We're agreed. Where do you want to begin with this? I have a couple places to begin. How about that? And then there you, you can, and then you can, uh, and I want you to interrupt me and I want you to add on. Okay. First thing I I thought that would be helpful to gloss is uh, an italicized passage that ends the first sentence. At the same time, usage becomes transformed. And then this is the italicized passage. Accessibility replaces the festival. We should explain the, the larger trajectory that he's been arguing or the argument he had been making prior to this point was this, that recording... Uh, and this is about the creation of the archive. Sound uh, um, sound recording, initially, he's given um, historical evidence, Atali is given historical evidence to back up this claim that the original intention, the original uh, aims and focus of sound recording was simply preservation. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, things, and it takes a while to do so, uh, there becomes a gradual pivot, um, and the pivot is toward this idea that um, ne- the recordings are important. It's not just preservation. You're preserving something that you can reuse, repeat, mm-hmm. re-listen to, and that that functionality, the new functionality of the sound recording, it where accessibility mass accessibility, potentially, if everybody buys the same item, mass accessibility becomes a new part of the functionality of music. Now, when he says, when Atali writes, um, replaces accessibility, replaces the festival, um, he uses the terms throughout the uh, chapter several times, what festival, and he also uses the word in this paragraph, um, performance, sacrifice, Oftentimes he talks about ritual, really what he's thinking of. And, you know, uh, so listeners and readers don't get lost. He's basically talking about the performance aspect of music, the mm-hmm. concert aspect of music, live music as opposed to the recording. And what he said, and so I'll do, I'll stop, I'll shut the F up after and let, <laughs> and let you talk after 
Let me just finish that gloss on accessibility replaces, and I'm just going to try to restate. Certainly. Accessibility replaces the festival. So what this means in Atali's language in the, in the context of the chapter is sound recording, because it's accessible, gives a new functionality to music. And as such, it gives a kind of new center to the musical experience gone or you know what will eventually get replaced or pushes aside we're at the beginning of a process so i i won't talk about replacement or pushing aside but right now what he's noticing is that with accessibility with the accessibility of sound recordings Audley is noticing there becomes a potential to push aside the live performance the ritual communal aspect of listening a chance to push that to the side. It's a beginning of a long process that uh, Atali will say, you know, eventually argue that the last hundred years of recording, now over a hundred years of recording, uh, sound recordings, have been pushing us to a point where accessibility, the new incredible functionality of music is going to replace the idea that music is only to be had in certain places at certain ritual, i.e. set, scheduled, you don't F with the ritual, right? The schedule time, ritual, you know, ritual just means schedule, right? Yeah, you have yeah, rituals, yeah. At, you know, it's about time, right? You don't F with the time. Accessibility is all about effing with the time of listening. So uh, okay. we, we, we've got the, the after dark, yeah. Barry yeah. Falk is salty. Yeah. I like it. So I'm, 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 my, I'm, I'm censoring myself. This is the G rated PG, PG at best. Anyway, salty. That, okay. I, I want to stop there, but does that sound yeah. fair? So, so, so I, I just, a couple, th this, this raises some questions for me, but I kind of want to add just a few things to it. So Please. one of the things that he mentions that happens here, right. And he, and he talks about this where, the artist or the musician has maybe only heard this once or twice twice in his lifetime, but suddenly the audience has unlimited access to it. Right. We've, you can crank we've it out really, the there's a massive juxtaposition here, right? Where um, your the center is no longer the musician. The audience now gets to be at the center in terms of when and how often this gets heard. But the great irony here is that the audience has now been shrunk into this, you know, he he talks about this later, and I don't think we're going to actually get to this point. So I'm going to, you know, spill a few you beans better, here. Yeah, tell us. Um, tell us. Right. One of the, the 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 funny and this this and he and Gould are still in the same place at this point. One of the ironies here is that as you as as the spectacle is diminished, you create the listener. It the focus is no longer on the musician. The focus is on the listener. Listening is always by it by its nature, an individual experience. So there's a weird alienation to this almost. So what you have is this, this recession of, of community and the ascension of the listener. So in, in an odd way, though it's more available, there's an alienation. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, and this is where it's interesting, and I have a question for you, Barry, and how you take this. Mm -hmm. As the spectacle dies the ritual dies right we no longer need live performance because i have on-demand performance mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. says um where where is it here it, it, it's stripped of its value right uh mm -hmm. it ceases to be a unique exceptional event heard once by a minority there's no longer the exclusivity and the value mm -hmm. that the spectacle had that it, instead mm -hmm. it's become just an individual experience I wonder if it's possible, and I think he, I, I suspect that he has the answer to this later and we'll discuss this, mm -hmm. but is it possible that the individual can create value or does value always have to be social? Well, I have an, an I have an answer to this question um, and it has to do with a little nagging um uh, nagging voice I had in my head when you were reading the passage. Uh, I too noticed the ways in which, so I'll answer this question this way. Atali in this passage and often in the chapter, I think Michael, and tell me if you agree, 
I think he often constructs this binary so that he, he constructs a binary. And I think he does it in this paragraph and not only in this paragraph, so that it seems to be a zero sum game that insofar as music has moved away from collective experiences to the individual realm, that's necessarily a hollowing out or a alienation, you know, in, in kind of strict dogmatic Marxist terms, the, the shift from a communal experience to an individual, more individualized nexus. I mean, Audley certainly assumes that that's a loss and a degradation. Uh, but now here, here's, so I said nagging voice. Actually, the nagging voice that I had, well, do you, first off, do you agree with me on that? I mean, it sounds like you do, like there's a binary here. So that, far, you know, I'm with you. It, so okay. far. So I'll tell you the nagging voice I heard. And ironically, the nagging voice I heard was Mr. Marxist himself, Tough Teddy, Tough Teddy Adorno. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, I can't remember the, uh, I think it was the phonograph record essay, right? But you correct me if I'm wrong. But Adorno, uh, I think it is the phonograph record essay where he, where Adorno mentions as a positive use, a positive value, a positive functionality of the record player is the individual, is what? The individualized communion with the material artifact of the sound recording. And wait, wait, um, as if that weren't enough. He says, I'll give you another analogy for it. And you saw it in Proust. And you know you're in good shape if, if, <laughs> if Adorno is quoting Proust. You know you're in the right way. You're going the right path. He says, um, he references Proust and talks about the experience of the individualized museum goer. Uh, that's an individualized a isolated performance, but Adorno says this is a moment of personal enrichment. He so, doesn't talk about it as a degradation of value. So I mean, but I, I let me let me yeah, let me sure. let's let's keep Adorno around for a second. Let me ask you this: yeah. yeah, in that essay, Adorno is arguing that the one real perk to recorded music, sure is that it preserves the music and in doing so it saves it from the attempt to modernize it fancy it up jazz it and in. actually spectacle right saves well that's where i was spectacle. going yeah. it yeah. saves it from spectacle whereas mm -hmm. atali is basically saying that it's so I, I don't think they disagree right like adorno would have spectacle die because spectacle is taking away, it's harming the music. Atali is saying, well, when we do this, it kills spectacle, but there's value. There's a religiosity to this that mm. is taken away. And so I, I think, you know, again, it's funny that the nice thing about this is that everybody agrees until they don't. And I think that we're still in agreement. At this mm. point, I think Adorno and Atali are like, yeah, this is this is what it does. They just view spectacle differently. Um, mm. I wonder can, can though. I, can I? Oh, go ahead. Well, because I was just gonna say I, the the, I, the, yeah, the question yeah. I was at the question I'm trying to yeah. get to mm -hmm. is that as an alienating force, you are dissolving the power of the social because there is no socialization. It is now individual. But why is that an alienating force? That's my point. And I would argue that Adorno is saying that's not an alienating balance. You see what I'm saying? That, that I, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It is the assumption in this passage is that moving it to the individual register is alienating. That's mm -hmm. absolutely right. And, but I'm reading the Adorno passage. Maybe you're reading the Adorno example differently. But I'm reading the Adorno example as a case where um, he 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 he's talking about individualizing. He's talking about subjective responses to the aesthetic, but it doesn't seem to be alienating. He well, is that? It. Yeah, I didn't mean to jump on. No, no, is no. That, I, I, is I, I, that I because Atali and and I I feel like we we risk being sort of insufferable here, referencing too many people outside of this essay. So I think we shouldn't linger too long. But I guess my question is. 
But our um, listeners, our listeners are definitely familiar with these essays because we've talked about them in previous episodes. Hype, uh, advertisement, you know, blatant promotional yeah. uh, moment. Okay, insert, yeah. insert no, your jingle I'm, I'm here. Okay. Insert um, your jingle here. Go ahead, please. You can also listen to the DeBoer episode as well, so you can really appreciate. <laughs> I wanted to talk about spectacle, so, so but, the, anyway, but my let, question is: this. I, I think could it just be that Adorno sees spectacle as a degrading influence that music needs to be saved from? The and yeah, yeah. Well, or, okay, so that's not fair. Yeah, I'm go not ahead, being. Go accurate. ahead. I'm sorry. That, He's concerned about what live performance is doing. Yes, right. Outside right, of the right, music. Right, right. And his right. argument is that all of the filigree that is the extra musical performance is detracting from the music. And in that regard, yeah, a yeah. recording removes yeah. all of that and just provides you with an audio, audio, you know, an audio experience. The visual is removed and that is a benefit. What Atali seems to be responding to here is the lack of a communal experience. I think that their focus is in a different place, and that might explain the difference. Um, You just a quick comment on there, simply because you dovetail. I said I wanted to talk about DeBoer, but you just ended up doing it. Mm -hmm. I think that was that was a brilliant interjection. I think you're exactly right. The difference is, um, um, yes. Adorno's concern was spectacle, but spectacle has a pretty literal, local, very localized meaning in Adorno. He is talking about the spectacle of kitschy theatrical performances of opera. Mm-hmm. That's the spectacle that he wants to. And insofar as the isolated listener is isolated from this distraction from the aesthetic experience presented by kitschy visual spectacle. Of course, Adorno likes it. And as as you and I were talking about pre, pre-game, right? The, in the pre-recording. Pre, uh, um, and this is worth, I think, worth mentioning to readers and listeners of the essay, because I think it, it's kind of the key. Um, Guy Debord is not, and this is, a, this is so effing French, Michael. This is so French. Um, that you know to reference to be everywhere referencing the key words of a another writer and to be always referencing their thought and never to mention or cite them at all that's what so everywhere in this chapter he's dropping the word and and this in this paragraph uh, and many other places, he talks about the spectacle of its performance. And you're you're totally right, Michael. Spectacle here is used, even though he's not cited. He is definitely, I think, thinking of referring to De Boer's idea of spectacle as a visual, not as a kitschy visual performance, right? But as a um, series of images that encourage passive consumption so let me ask total debordian thing let me ask that's the difference so just one and a half more things yeah right the fact that adorno was concerned with opera and atali is really talking more about just popular music or music i guess right michael is that do you agree with that no 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 no, hold on let me finish okay i don't think but i don't know if i agree with that well, I, what I was going to say is I think that Adorno's concerns would still apply to Atali. Yeah, and I just did the annoying thing of interrupting a question by saying I don't like your question. So that, you know, ah, that, that's, well, that's so, a very So let me ask, let me ask one, let, let me so, ask just one last question. And I think you can probably do this with a yes or no. And, yeah. and we could move on because it's not a part of this, but it's just, it's been gnawing at the back of my brain since yeah, we started the yeah. discussion. Yeah. Do you feel that this idea here would still apply to the visual arts with the ability to record and reproduce or to reproduce images. No, I said that on the fly and maybe I'll reconsider it by the end of the podcast, but it does seem that the, 
in, in the same way with Gould, it does seem that recording in this case, the axes, the key ways in which in which Otto Lee is talking about recording, it has to do with sound. It has to do with silence. It has to do with noise. I don't know if there are already visual equivalents. Okay. So I think not. I mean, my first answer would be that. Maybe I'm going to reconsider and I want to see and I want to hear if you if you are if you disagree, I want to hear it because let, I, let, I'm very I think, uncertain I think what I'm saying. Let's soldier on a bit before I want to I want to dig a little deeper before I hazard a response to my Michael, own question. Because I don't Michael, know. Michael, uh well, while we're posing questions we don't want to answer, I, I want to go back to the the question that, that I cut you off on because it was a great question. Um it's become great. Huh? It's gone from horrible to great. <laughs> no, it wasn't a horrible question. I did interrupt you because it was horrible. I don't know why I interrupt you. I'm just rude. I'm a bad person. Um, the, But if I understood your question, uh, I think it's really relevant, which is, now, what you were referring to is that he mostly mentions his case examples are jazz and rock, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, my... My impulse is to say that he is talking about recording writ large. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that Gould, who was mostly talking about so-called classical music, orchestral right. music, symphonic music, um, is he never references the pop world. Um, but I feel that, it, you know, it doesn't matter. So um, the kinship, the the kin convergences and divergences between Glenn Gould's essay and Ali's chapter kind of, you know, again, we see them here that Gould talks about pop music, gives, um, talks about recording. His examples are exclusively taken from uh, classical music. Um, Asali's examples talks about recording. His examples are exclusively taken, I think, mostly, um, I think exclusively by jazz and rock music. Um, but I think that that really what both of them are talking about is the phenomenology of recording and the phenomenology of listening to sound recordings. So, I mean, that's my feeling about it. But I think it is, I, I'd be very interested in hearing what you think. I'm going to. Do you want to do you want to you want to you want to. I, I think I, I, I think that. You want to break it Excuse me. I, I think that what Atali is talking about mm -hmm. applies to recorded music across the board. Yeah, because that's my he he's he casts a pretty wide net. He's not concerned with the same aspects of the spectacle that Adorno is, and that's what prompted right. the question. They're looking at yeah. this yeah. through a slightly different lens. But I think if it is sound recording, and that's the reason why I asked about the uh, the, the the you know the visual arts as well. Um, it doesn't, the visual arts don't really fill the same spaces in the same way. And that's I why I would be inclined to say no, but you know, I've been known to make the strange U-turn from time to time. So I'm going to officially hold off. Shall we move on to the second one? Please do. So that was just a page later. And here he is talking about, uh, repetition so we're still talking about recording mm -hmm. and he says the major contradiction of repetition is in evidence here and this next section this next sentence is italicized people must devote their time to producing the means to buy recordings of other people's time losing in the process not only the use of their own time but also the time required to use other people's time so this is an economic, these are, this is transactional now. His concern has shifted. Stockpiling then becomes a substitute, not a preliminary condition for use. People buy more records than they can listen to. They stockpile what they want to find the time to hear. Do you want to keep reading or do you want to stop? No, I right think there? let's, again, I don't, I think small bites are good today. Small bites. Okay. Small bites. Well, are we English teachers or what? This paragraph, this passage is the whole essay, isn't it? I Most it of is. it. 
It's the first half. A lot of it. Do you want to take a stab at it since I was yammering on forever on the last one? Why do you well, want to take a stab at it? I'm going to take a very short poke at it. Okay. And, and the, the argument here is the first portion, right? We have a contradiction. Okay. Yeah. We have to spend our time essentially working to enable ourselves to buy money or, excuse me, to buy recordings that other people have taken the time to produce. That's fine. Um, I think the key thing lurking in here is that, boy, the ability to do this includes, or excuse me, uh, what's the word I want? My God, it's I'm struggling here. Hmm. Um, entices us essentially to hoard, right? We are encouraged to overconsume. Time is now the currency. We must spend our time to acquire other people's time. And we will buy more than we can possibly listen to. And I find this interesting because, you know, we were talking uh, before we started recording about how the iPod, when it came out and the digitization of music, you know, when we, the, the, the advent of the MP3 really created a context where we could see what he's talking about playing out. Mm-hmm. Right. You had music collections that just became absurdly bloated, mm-hmm. that the value was in mm-hmm. possession. The mm-hmm. idea that you were going to listen to all of the music that you had was downright absurd. It was more about hoarding because you could. And so I think that's really the sort of dark side of what recording enables is it turns us all into hoarders. Um, mm-hmm. Where do you want to go with this? I mean, uh, that's great. Uh, I I, I want to keep on going, um, uh, just basically adding a few things to what you said. I mean, um, this is the process. I guess I have one or two things to say. I guess the first thing to say is we were talking about sound recording. But this passage now, we are talking about the ways in which sound recording necessarily where you have the invention of sound recording. Then you have this idea that sound recordings are valuable because they give mass accessibility and new functionality to music. And they make music repeatable, accessible in a way, uh, performances of music accessible and repeatable in a way that it had never heretofore, you know, have. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that. Then, but, you know, what he hasn't explained yet and what he's trying to explain here is how that seemingly innocent or blessed invention, uh, the ability to the new accessibility of music necessarily becomes troped or turned that the, 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 by its own logic, the logic of accessibility leads to hoarding, leads to stockpiling, leads to this idea that the sound recording becomes a substitute for the real experience and interaction with music. I'm just going to add one passage that we didn't read, um, but in the same paragraph, I'm going to go Absolutely. To- yeah, no, I think, I think really to the end of this section, uh, is yeah, yeah. We could, I just we didn't want that. to run through it all at once. No, 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 no. And I'm glad you didn't. But, um, you know, so I think what's really interesting about this paragraph and about his argument is that, you know, he talks about the ways in which, you know, 50 years ago, uh, and, and, you know, the I'm sorry, not 50 years ago, this um, 50 years ago from the from this particular point that he's narrating, really, he's talking about the 1870s. I think it's 1860. Let me double check on this. I think I wrote it down. Um, well, that'd be like 120 years ago, right? Eight, uh, well, oh, no, sorry. He's writing it. Never mind. Yeah. Anyway, 1877 and then 18. So 1877, he's talking about a process in 1877. There's about like a 20 or 30 year lag time between, you know, this idea that, hey, we got records. It takes about 30 years before people say, oh, you know what? Um records are great because they give you access to performances, not just it's cool to hear grandma's voice on a record uh, when we no longer have grandma. 
now we, we have this idea that we have a performance of music or a sound recording that can um, that is great to be able to hear all the time, not just as a memento. So, um, but what he, you know, what he feels that even in that moment, in sip, there's something incipient in that process that's going to lead to hoarding. This new, new notion of accessibility is going to lead to hoarding. You want to say something? I'll, I I'll do. And I have a, a question sure. about sort of the, the, the sure. incentive to hoard. And you had said something interesting just now about how, you know, it's not about accessing grandma's voice after grandma's gone. It's about accessing these performances. And I yeah. wonder if there isn't this sort of veneer or this idea that, and I, he teases this idea throughout, I think, yeah. that spectacle, while greatly diminished, mm -hmm. the idea of spectacle, the idea of the performance still yeah. has a value. And grandma's voice recorded and placed on a, on a vinyl disc was never part of the spectacle. It simply won't have the same value. However, if we can have access to these performances, even if they are studio performances, absolutely, we can still listen to that absolutely. and have the idea in play yeah. that this is what the spectacle will be. So it is a, it's the simulacra of the spectacle. So despite the fact that the spectacle you just, is- You just became a French person when you said that. That was amazing. I, I saw I, you transform. You I do feel like in a, a little different. Light. When you said this, what did you say? The simulacra of the, the simulacra. Yes. Oh my God. How I am, did you say that sentence? I don't you know. Are French. But is French. that, is, is that maybe, you know, cause I hadn't, I hadn't thought about this until just now, but part of the hoarding is the idea it, it, it's in a way it's almost nostalgic, right? We're trying yeah. to reach back to capture something or reach out to capture something, a community, a performance, a moment, again, a religiosity that isn't Absolutely. there. And Absolutely. that, I think, if that's his idea, that explains why he's looking at this as hollow. Like Gould, want, Gould wants to kill the performance. If you ask Gould, the recording does not take you to spectacle. The recording puts you in your favorite chair where you can study and you can learn. It demolishes. Right. It, it, that's it, brilliant. It, it demolishes brilliant. the spectacle. Well, I think well, what Altali is looking at is yeah. – well, it's if you are trying to recapture that spectacle, it's gone. And the very tool that you're using to reach out is what killed it. Wow. You just like took us to a whole other level. That was it's, that was great. I'm not going to say a damn thing. After it's that. because that I'm French. Great. It's you're, because I'm French now. Your French moment, your French transformation took, took us to a whole new level. That's exactly. You know what I was about to ask you? And you just brilliantly answered it. I thought, you know. If we wanted to get to the nub of this passage, we're going to have to explain to listeners. Okay, he's talking about this process of about where we become stockpile hoarders, where we all become hoarders. So, Michael, we're going to have to explain why um, we move so readily, or or as a as a people, as human beings, we move from this new accessibility to hoarding and to stockpiling. Uh, I was saying we have to explain that to listeners. You just did, right? I did. You're always well, trying to scratch the itch because the itch by definition, the itch of ritual, right? Mm -hmm. The itch of ritual, just because it's done or, or, or gone or displaced, even, you're always trying to scratch the itch of that er moment with the music, that yeah. er encounter. And so what do you do? You keep on buying stuff and you and there's a way in which buying is always repetition. Is always has a nostalgic valence. It's always about repetition. You repeat the action or a trauma. You're repeating an action because, you know, you know, I'm a I'm a record collector um, and I, you know, and I, I talk with record collectors and we all have this experience, which is why. um which is why Audely, I think this passage is where Audely is dead on. If you talk to a record collector, they're always remembering record buying the record. Mm -hmm. Not, I'm not even talking about listening to the record. No, you don't I'm need talking, to listen to the record. The record becomes the artifact. The exactly. I mean, this is a, this is the stockpiling thing. 
if you're a record collector, you remember where you purchased, where you found, you remember well, the record store where you bought the records. So this is, I think this right? is the premise, this idea, I'm going to try and take this a step further here. This is the premise for um, Hornby's um, high fidelity, right? Oh, yeah, the idea that these are, yeah. these become fetish properties, he calls them, right? And it's exactly. not about, right. it's right. not about right. the actual listening so much as it's about all of the non-tangible uh, or intangible sort of, what's the word? I'm like, God, I'm really struggling with words. Words are hard for me tonight, man. Um, you're a French moment. Abstract. So it's it's about the abstractions around it. It's about the spectacle that this represents more than the contents of the disc itself. Oh, well, I mean, we're talking about you. You're using the right Marxist terms, alienation, fetishism. You said a moment ago. You're using the right words, I think, and that's what he's talking about. Um, and and you know, I, I have to say this this paragraph is the paragraph that always hits home for me because I always said this to myself. I I am the perfect um uh capitalist dude uh for sure because I often say to myself, I'm buying this record. I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to listen to it, but, but I gotta I own it, I gotta buy it. You know, I I am always scratching that ish, but I want it. I'll, I'll shut up after I just sort of underscore the word you use, because I think it's really crucial. You're talking about the ways in which um, this chapter is called repetition. And so much of that repetition is about nostalgia. And and nostalgia often is powered by, um, it isn't just like this idea. It isn't so much the idea that you can recapture. It's your desire, your limitless desire to recapture the first time or those first the excitement you had when you got the record that you really loved and you know so it's always about chasing a phantom um so much of that energy of so much of the energy of stockpiling and hoarding is about chasing this phantom of the first time that you heard something, you had an experience of something. And you know, a word we haven't used, but uh, just to that we should add to this, aura. We're chasing yeah. an aura yeah. that isn't there, right? We're chasing an aura isn't there. And that's one of the reasons we're stockpiling and hoarding. We're chasing uh, that, that original authentic experience that we feel we had that was more, that when we were younger and it's more authentic, and um, we're, that's driving the motor car. That's what's causing the stockpiling. Shall we move on? We shall. I think we should talk about background noise, right? Let's go. The other big concept. Shall I? I shall I have the 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 section pulled up. Shall sure, I? Sure, sure, sure. Please. Okay. Yes. So keep on reading. Um. So we're we're now, as Barry had said, we're now talking about um the role that the archive plays in becoming background music um shoot okay so here we go uh ta, ta, ta. take before for you, example before one you, of the most before you read before you read though let's oh sorry just remind just remind listeners that um glenn gold ended his essay by talking about we discussed this in the previous episode he discussed background music and had a positive valence and i'll 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 See if I can yep. quote words that you used a moment ago, you know, a couple minutes ago when you were talking about that uh, the recording for Gould sound recording is amazing because the listener is not isolated. Uh, the listener is able to study and commune and become a better listener and a better performer and a better recording artist because of their communion. I so, think and, yeah, Go, I'm background sorry. music has a pedagogical focus for yeah. Gould. I, I think additionally, uh Notably, according to Gould, with the recording music, with recorded background music, the two things happen. The listener actually gains agency because yeah, they are right. able it's to really manipulate fun. the music. And the right. other thing is that there is a banality to the background music. And as a result of the sameness, exceptional works stand out. So... The two differences for me, <clears throat> one, you have an active 
agentive listener with Gould. And there is room <clears throat> for exceptional, valuable work to shine. With are we good? Right. Okay. So um, I love it. I love it. So uh, now we're gonna read Atali. Right. So Atali says, take, for example, one of the most characteristic firms dealing with the music of silencing. So he's making the argument that is very different from Gould here. Mm -hmm. Muzak. <clears throat> Created in 1922 to provide music over the telephone, it branched out beginning in 1940 into selling atmospheric music. Can, it I, has stop you, can I stop you just uh, just to uh, ask you a question about that sentence? By or all means. I, your impression of that sentence. Um, were you surprised like I was about that music was invented so early? I had no idea. I, was I associated with shocked. the Madman era. I associate I, it with the 50s and 60s. So, it, it, but I think it's also because, yes, absolutely. I, I quite frankly associate Muzak with an elevator. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so to think that it goes back by that. to the early 20s, but it's not out of place with his argument, I don't oh, think. Oh, it, it, it totally confirms his argument because it says, and actually, one of it's his enduring. Other points. One of, yes. And one of his other points even is that until, you know, he mentions that, of course, one of his Benoit's, uh, I have to say that now since you're Gallic, one of his Benoit's is the recording industry. Um, and he mentions that, you know, I can talk about the recording industry, but the recording industry really isn't there until after the Great Depression. So that means in the Atelier timeline, you have Muzak, you have the potential for for background noise, even before you really have the full-fledged recording industry. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing to me. It is. And it really supports his argument. Okay. So take, for example, one of the most characteristic firms dealing in the music of silencing, Muzak. Created in 1922 to provide music over the telephone. It branched out beginning in 1940 into selling atmospheric music. <clears throat> it has countless clients, stadiums, parks, salons, cemeteries, factories, clinics, including veterinary clinics, banks, swimming pools, restaurants, hotel lobbies, even garbage dumps. I, now, I go to the now, wrong wait dumps. Wait a minute here. Wait a minute here. Now, I just, just hit me. When have you ever been to a cemetery and heard background music? I've never been to a cemetery where I, heard I don't, I don't frequent them, but, um, the the and list is kind of surprising. Uh, like, garbage dumps, garbage dumps. Where's uh, your garbage dump with uh, music? I go. I, I guess I go to the wrong dumps. But is he um, making stuff up, Michael? Is he making stuff up? He would never do that. <laughs> so I'm me, sorry. We'll I'm go, sorry. We'll go Please. finish. Uh, the, that's the, the end of this paragraph. But the next one, I think, is a part of our discussion as Please. well. Yes, it is. The pieces of music used on the tapes they sell are the object of a treatment akin to castration. Called, don't mince words, Jock. Let's don't go right after it. Don't, called, hold, hold, don't hold back. Called, quote, range of intensity limitation. If anything says castration, it is range of intensity I, limitation, which consists, which consists of dulling the tones and volume. They are oh. then put on perforated cards classed by genre, length, and type of ensemble and programmed by a computer into sequences of 13 and one half minutes which are then in turn integrated into completed series of eight hours before being put on the market. Wow. He lived, he lived uh, in, uh, this is obviously in the analog age, but uh, I guess, I guess it, no, I guess he's talking about the digital age, right? A pre, yeah. You know, an early form of the digital age, right? Okay. So 1922 to the digital age and beyond. Okay. Or into our current digital moment. All right. So and uh, did you want to read? Uh, oh, we don't need to do that. But let's talk about this. Let's what do we this. want? What do we want to yeah. say about this? Um. Well, I, how about I'll tell you what. I'm just going to add. Uh, let me read the paragraph which we didn't mark up here. I but think it's on the same page. Yeah. Okay. Because I think that's going to get that's going to introduce the key terms, and I want to hear your comments on the key terms. Okay. Before Atali talks, gives the specific example of music 
Muzak. He get, he tells you why he feels that he gives you an argument. He argues, he tries to explain why he feels the notion of background music is um, antithetical to ritual, productive, generative uses of music. Why it's part of a negative social function and not a positive social function. So, Michael, I will draw your attention and the listener's attention to a paragraph just uh, right before the one you were reading. And I'll read this paragraph. The situation is not new. After all, Haydn and Mozart, the situation of having background music, uh, playing music that's meant to be not meant to get your full attention. And uh, Attili writes, after all, Haydn and Mozart's works were almost exclusively background music, intended for an elite who valued them only as a symbol of power. But, and, and we should remark on this, as, as you were saying, Michael, earlier uh, in the pregame show, power is another of his keywords. And uh, when we're talking about stockpiling, we're talking about hoarding of music, hoarding of sound recordings. Uh, and when we're talking about background noise and background music, um, uh, Ottilie, uh ties the social functions of music or social uses of music to domination, to ways in which we are disempowered, in which the bulk of people are disempowered. Uh, in order to empower, I don't know, a ruling elite. I think there's a quasi-Marxist idea here. Anyway, uh, but here in the current moment, power in background noise, the current here means the current moment of background noise, as opposed to the earlier Haydn-Mozart moment. But here power has extended its functions to all of society, and music, and you read all those places where the music gets piped in, including in uh, Jacques Attali's world, uh, garbage dumps and uh, cemeteries. Um, here, power has extended its function to all of society and music has become background noise, and that's a bad thing, for the masses. The music, uh, here's why background noise is bad. This new background noise is, I'm resuming reading the passage, the music of channelization toward consumption. It is the music of worldwide repetition. It is music for silencing. Drop mic, mic drop. <clears throat> music for silencing. So uh, you're going to explain what he means by this since you're having a mind meld with the French. I'm trying. But why is it silencing? Why is, so, it, why is it the music of world? Why is background music the music of worldwide repetition? Well, so here, here's the funny thing. Um, I just had a little bit of an insight as I'm listening to this, right? The Please. argument that he makes earlier about music and background music as being a silencing force is because by its presence, you literally cannot speak, right? Yes. <clears throat> it takes the play. It, it fills that space that you might use to express yourself. Yes. Ergo, you have been silenced. But there's something else in here that I hadn't noticed until you read it. So Hay Hayden and Mozart's works are almost exclusively background music for an elite who valued them as a symbol of power. Of their right? power. Exactly. But again, part of silencing is, is domination and power. Mm -hmm. And so this is the soundtrack to power. It is. Oh, the, absolutely. It is, yes. the, it is the soundtrack Very for good. the elite. So what happens when the soundtrack for the elite becomes background for the masses? It is a clear indication of the hierarchy and everybody's position in it. Because this is the background music that you cannot speak over. We have filled those spaces. And it is the background music of a class that does not belong to you, but it speaks for you. It is quite literally silencing the other voice. And it is normalizing 
and validating and spreading, right? Background music by its nature is virtually ubiquitous. There are no places it does not go. We are broadcasting far and wide. Hey, this is the voice that gets hurt. So it's, it's, it's this lovely little bit of sort of propaganda in a way like we're just gonna spread it out and you're gonna accept the fact that this is the way the order should be well michael i'm fascinated by this idea that background noise background music also provides a sort of overt message of propaganda for the status quo can you can you elaborate a little bit about that i can try so to do this is actually good because it's going to bring us back full circle and we're probably at that time so we were talking earlier and we had mentioned that, or I'd made the, the the statement that recorded music kills the spectacle. It kills the performance, right? And we had said that in this moment, Atali and Gould are in the same place. They just value the performance differently, right? Yes, right. right. Okay. So what's happened if we're in Atali's world, and we are, is that... <laughs> The recorded music strips the spectacle of its value. And in talking about this earlier, I, I kept using the word rigid, religiosity, right? The 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 sort of uh, aura, religious the, religi- the, the uh, aura, aura around it. Okay. So what is so if if we 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 have to take that as sort of the premise here that recorded music carries with it an aura, okay, mm-hmm. and that aura is both pervasive throughout the music. And it, uh, you can think about this. I'm thinking about this in terms of genre, for example, right? There's an aura to genre that transcends any particular recording. It is the glue that holds these types of music together. So if you look at something like Muzak, right, which is our poster child for background music, it is organized according to mood and tempo and tone. It The, the various auras of the background music are impactful. They have an impact on the listener. And so if we had said earlier that the hoarding of music, which creates this massive you know, uh, personal archive, which is at the same time alienating, is an attempt subconsciously probably for the listener to capture the aura to dwell in the aura then what happens with background music especially background music that is chosen for you and you see this with music he talks about this with music is that you are not just subject to the music itself what makes the background music work what i've called a propaganda is the impact of the aura on the listener. Oh, I see. I see. You are going to identify this. You are going to physically and emotionally respond to the music in very predictable ways. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, which is going to be a function of tempo and tone and you know how how that music is manipulated to create a certain effect, but you are also going and that that that's independent of aura in many ways. That is a physical response and an emotional response to this. But there is also the what we're calling aura, which is going to bring back the myth of that spectacle, which is going to communicate in this case, class difference or uh social position, which is another version of class difference, I guess. So that's what I'm talking about in terms mm-hmm. of the propaganda, that's this return to the spectacle that doesn't really physically exist in any legitimate way, but still holds enough power to keep people in line. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. You know, when you were talking about um, and you were describing background music and moods and the ways in which background music is organized, um, even oh, music is organized, you know, was organized uh, when Otto Lee was talking about. It was always organized according to tempo and mood mm-hmm, and things mm-hmm. like this. Um, a thought occurred to me. Mm. Um most of the Spotify playlists. I'm going, I was right there. Right? Yeah. They are organized. So it doesn't really matter the content. I mean, this might be a 
we really is, have here to we stop go. now. Here's, we here's really back have to, to stop now because it's fluid, right? Well, we, think about we, think think about the yeah. mixtape. I don't know. I think I I did this really. Well, let, let me let me let me go ahead. Go ahead. Make go sure ahead. we're on the same. Let me make sure that we're on the same oh, wavelength. We are. I think we are. We are. I think we are. Like it doesn't matter about the the uh, the content of the Spotify playlist. It's about the form, and the form has the form is there. Uh, and the way we interact with the form, it's going to have those psychological effects that you were perfectly describing. It, it, we're exactly in the same place. I was just going to say, uh, I spent the better part of my high school years making mixtapes. And one of the amazing things about that was you would make these tapes and they were often mood mood pieces. And if you look at the composition of the musicians that formed these tapes like the it was the motliest group of people that would never show up in a regular discussion about anything save for the fact that they all at some point in their catalog recorded a song that fit that mood and the less similar those bands would be in terms of like genre grouping the more interesting and satisfying the tape became because look you know look look what i could build but when you say interesting and satisfying, that's those are those are positive aesthetic terms. What you're describing, see, I thought was it seemed like it was more of this kind of subconscious manipulation. Well, it is. Why would I record this? Well, it's going to make me sad, or well, it's going to put me in this mood, <laughs> or well, it's going to do that. You're doing How it to yourself. The only difference is you're doing it to yourself in that situation. Okay, we've gotten dark. This okay. I'm, We've got I'm, dark. Have, have I, I, stop. Must I, I relinquish stop. my Frenchness now? I, I don't know. Um, Say yeah, it this... again, Michael, just just to just to give me you know tremors of uh, pleasure <laughs> as I go off into the night. What was it? The simulacra of spectacle. <laughs> <laughs> I got to hear it one more time. No, come on. Yeah, yeah, you have to go back and listen to it all over <laughs> oh, again. Oh no, Barry, this was a wonderful good time. Uh, thank you. This, this we was hope fun. our listeners liked it. Read Jacatelli repetition. We're, we're repeating. Uh, we're we're recommending it, right? Or are uh, we? Oh, I, okay. Um, that's another episode. We'll talk about that another. Episode. It's it's you know what I would say this. It's 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 a long read. I think I would absolutely <laughs> look at this in phrase. pieces. It's I would look at this in pieces. All right, all right. All right. Okay. Barry, thank but you that so qualified much. Qualified phrase. It's been fun, Michael. It, it's been very enlightening. Thank you very much. Have a great um, night. You are a fr not only a rock star, you are a Gallic rock star tonight. And I'm happy to share the airwaves with you. So uh, until next time. All right, Barry. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com.